0: So I think we'll go ahead and get started. As usual, we have this microphone that seems to be totally dead, but it's not. It's recording. Uh, it's just not amplifying. Um, so today, our speaker is uh, Tom Streeter, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Vermont. He is the co-editor of Mousepads, Shoe Leather, and Hope, Lessons from the Howard Dean Campaign for the Future of Internet Politics which is not the topic of his talk today, but I'm sure he'd be happy to answer any questions about that um, in election year and all. Um, He is the author of Selling the Air, a Critique of the Policy of Commercial Broadcasting in the United States. And most recently, he's the author of The Net Effect, Romanticism, Capitalism, and the Internet. Um, Professor Streeter studies media technology, law, and culture, focusing on, as he puts it, the soft side of hard issues. That is, the role of cultural beliefs in shaping things like institutions, property, legal regulation, and technology. Um, He asked me to mention that a dialogue between himself and Zizi Papacharisi?
1: Yeah, you got it. Yes,
0: uh, centered on the habitus of the new will be posted on the web this Monday at a site called culturedigitally.org. And Streeter is particularly interested in the role of technology in the lives of people who hate it. Um, and to this end, he has just started research on a project about the introduction of computer databases into the legal profession in the 1980s, um, which sounds very interesting. Um, so, without further ado, uh, the internet and the habitus of the new, what would Pierre Bourdieu say about Facebook? Hit it.
1: Thanks very much, Heather. It's, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm guessing... I don't know what you know Um, in two senses. One, you know a lot that I don't know, I'm sure most of you, and so I'm hoping that for some interaction I'm going to present some very new and fairly raw stuff. But I also, um, you know, I write for various audiences, and I may refer to things or make arguments about uh, things that uh, perhaps in scholarship and particularly looking at the ages of many of you certainly like in the history of computing that you may not be all that familiar with. So, um, I will be reading my presentation but if you you know kind of look at me quizzically as I say something or raise your hand while I'm speaking and just just for clarification's sake, please uh, feel free. Okay, now what I'm gonna do today is present something uh, first fairly polished, a kind of case study that's from one of the chapters of my book, The Net Effect. But then uh, the unpolished part is I'm going to apply this concept of the habitus of the new, which is an idea that I got from Zizi Papachirisi, who's a very interesting media studies scholar at the University of Chicago, Illinois, or at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Now, but to start, I'll say just a few words about my work in general and where I'm coming from. Um, First, a couple words about history. History speaks to us, shapes us, even and maybe especially in moments of novelty. When we experience something that's novel, as new, when we say, wow, that's a new thing, um, that experience is in certain ways conditioned by the past. Um, and I think this is very true of one of the biggest novelties of the last three decades, the Internet. Most books written about the Internet present it as a harbinger of the future. Books have titles like The Road Ahead, The Future of Creativity, The Future of the Economy, or they refer to evils that lurk in the future if we don't act. Uh, Jonathan Trains is a great example. It's a good book. Um, the Future of the Internet and what, How to Stop It, I think. Um, but in the net effect, I did something different. There I look at the internet more in the manner of Walter Benjamin's Angel of History backwards. Um, if you've never read that little bit from Walter, I also nodding heads great. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> um, he, he presents as a sort of uh, mythical reading of a painting where he imagines an angel, wings spread towards the future and eyes on the past and the kind of debris of the um, present fall into the sight of the angel, the angel of history. Now my question about the internet then is what exactly has happened? not what is going to happen. Um, And I think part of the argument of the net effect is that much of our experience of the Internet as new and revolutionary is in fact a product of our past experience, a product of history, not always just of something novel about the technology itself. And I think that asking what has happened exactly can sometimes better prepare us for the future than prognostication. Um, Now, one more thing about my approach. Uh, You might notice references to markets, property, capitalism in the title of the net effect. So references to these kinds of things scattered throughout my work. I am interested in connecting culture to capitalism. Um, I do think capitalism is, in a very, very particular sense of this word, dominant in our lives. It shapes our choices, it shapes what we can and can't do in very profound ways. Um, but I don't want to treat the fact of capitalism as a kind of pre-given machine, as the singular key that unlocks everything else. I don't know if you've had the free labor debates, but there's a kind of rhetoric that goes, ah, you say free labor, I say it's really exploitation, that actually you think it's this, but really there's kind of capitalism underneath everything. Um, That's not what I'm doing. Um, What I'm interested in is why and how capitalism matters and doesn't matter. And I think that's something that's worth exploring. So it was Eric Hobsbawm who said, capitalism is not the answer, but the question. Capitalism's power and character are not self-explanatory. There are big, I think, not fully answered questions about how markets and property just come to be in the first place. Um, And about how people carve out lives in relations to things like markets, property, and corporations. And so these are some of the questions that I'm gnawing on in the background in my work. But now, I'm going to shift gears, and I'm going to tell a story. Um, Specifically, I'm going to recall a moment from computing history. What it was like to go online around 1990. Um, And some of you... This is still a vivid memory. Some of you will have not been very cognizant when this happened. Um, now, in 1990, desktop computers had recently lost the novelty they'd had in the early 1980s, in the days of the microcomputer revolution, when Apple and Microsoft were startup companies revolutionizing the industry, when people were amazed to see a computer sitting on someone's desk. That period was over and instead computers had become a routine part of everyday life, of office life. So this is a film still from the film Working Girl and the the point is just that if you wanted to make a movie about ordinary office life in the late 80's you had to throw computers into the clutter. If you look at movies from 1980 or something like that, have you ever seen 9 to 5, classic? They don't have computers on their desks. Yeah, right. So uh, um, by the late 80s, computers were just their part of the background. Um, So they were like photocopiers. In most offices, though, people who used email were still a tiny minority. Web browsing was unknown. Computers were mostly standalone machines that looked like this thing. Um, those who had experimented with email a bit had done so typically within specific confined worlds like CompuServe, Prodigy, local bulletin boards, or one of several restricted academic or corporate networks. So, going online was thus technically possible with the computers that were on the desks of, say, journalists, academics, um, mid level managers, and secretaries. But it was out of the ordinary. It wasn't part of the routine yet. Um, now, this is a picture of a, I just pulled off the web of, uh, from an astronomer's website of his early days as a young astronomer, which I think he said this was about 1992. And um, so an office might look like that. One of the things I want you to notice is how much paper's there. Life still happened to a large degree on paper. Um, So, but if you did go online in those days, if you weren't a computer professional, there were people working on networking and so forth, but if you weren't part of a narrow, tiny uh, group of professionals, going online was something you did out of curiosity. It took a substantial amount of time and was unlikely to yield much in the way of immediate practical value. For the vast majority, communications that mattered still happened exclusively on paper or on the phone. If you went online, you knew that most people around you did not. Um, Now, going online typically required purchasing and plugging in a roughly paperback book-sized modem. Computers did not come with modems in those days, um, not routinely. Uh, The modem had a bank of mysterious flashing red lights, and using it involved installing, configuring, and then running a terminal program typing in commands, listening to the squealing modem, and typing in another cryptic series of commands and passwords. There's no pointing and clicking yet in the online world, even if you had one of the early Macintoshes with a mouse. By the time you were online, the mouse was irrelevant. Um, And just getting it all going the first time was at least a 45-minute time investment and then figuring out what to do once signed on was a further challenge. Gateways between computer networks were still being constructed, so it wasn't like there was one world you entered. Um, As a result, to send, say, an email from the BitNet network, I don't know if you can read the text up there, but uh, um, to send something from the BitNet network that I was on back in those days, across the still very limited internet. The email address had to be sandwiched when you sent it between quote marks and prefaced by I and percent, standing for internet. Um, and you had to get this exactly right. And it was really hard to figure out that that's what you had to do. Um, so there, there was a, it was a really arcane little experiment to go online in those days. But once you had mastered such arcana, you could then enter what felt like a secret world. So now, this is the broad context of the early 90s, in which a message appeared on a number of discussion lists, February 1993, prefaced with the following. It just says, the text is, folks, this lovely missive came from surf punks. Um, and Even the the title surf punks would have been strikingly unusual in those days. Um, The idea of JPB, who was John Perry Barlow, giving an invited address on technology to the intelligence community is just so sweet, and it's a good speech, too, from a guy called Larry Hunter. Now, the bulk of the message was the text of an address given a few months before, in December 1992, by John Perry Barlow, who had recently co-founded the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He was giving an address to a conference on national security outside of Washington, D.C. And as the message made clear, many members of the U.S. intelligence community were present. That's the CIA, the FBI, the NSA. Barlow's agenda as an frontier, Electronic Frontier Foundation representative was to educate this community about the value of, say, protecting free speech and privacy in the digital realm. But now, I'm going to do a little stylistic analysis. Um, ordinarily, when speaking to a skeptical audience, most people are likely to adopt a careful, formal, rhetorical strategy. You downplay your disagreements, and differences and represent yourself as having a deep respect for the audience members. Um, That's not what John Perry Barlow did. This is how his talk began. I can't tell you the sense of strangeness that comes over someone who earns his living writing Grateful Dead songs, addressing people who earn their livings as many as you do especially after hearing the last speaker. If you don't appreciate the irony of our appearing in succession, you have no sense of irony at all. The reason I am here has absolutely nothing to do with the Grateful Dead. I'm here because I met a fellow named Mitch Kapoor in 1989. Despite obvious differences, I felt as if we'd both been up in the same saucer or something, that we shared a sense of computers being more than just better adding machines or better typewriters. We saw that computers connected together had the capacity to create an environment which human beings could and did inhabit. The people who share this awareness are natives of the future. People who have a hard time with it may always be immigrants." When Mitch and I saw that computers had created a place, we started asking some questions about what kind of place it was. We decided to name it Cyberspace, after Bill Gibson's description of a futuristic place rather like it, which we found in his novel Neuromancer. Um, those of you who are, for whom kind of entered the world a few years after this, this language will seem kind of ordinary. Um, it was, comp- it was quite extraordinary at the time. and Let me uh, talk a little bit about what's going on in it. It was an, an example of some habits of talk and thought that would soon be moving into the mainstream with enormous impact. Now Barlow was probably the key figure in, pr- in importing the term cyberspace from the world of science fiction fan programmers into middle-brow discourse. So it was after this point that the internet could be envisioned not just as a tool or a set of devices with predictable potentials potentials, but as an unknown space to be explored and thus available for any number of collective projections such as the frontier metaphor that uh, um, his foundation um, put in its title. But Barlow's refiguring of the frontier metaphor was also heavily inflected with tropes from the 1960s counterculture. Barlow's missive featured a studied informality. Um, We'd both been up in the same saucer or something. Mitch, Bill. I mean, this wasn't how you ordinarily spoke in a formal conference, right? Um, There was a pleasure in iconoclasm if you don't appreciate the irony. Um, And there was a flamboyant individualism in the EFF's relentless focus on personal privacy and liberties, partly, but also just in the style. But this bit of computer co- counterculturalism also had an association in this context with power. I mean, the CIA. Um, he was talking to the CIA, and crucially, in a classic countercultural maneuver, this is wh- this is something that people learned in the late '60s. Instead of flattering his audience or downplaying his differences from them. Barlow offers them a choice between being one who gets it and one who doesn't. Accept his rhetorical universe and you get to be a native of the future. Reject it, however, you are threatened with an always being an immigrant. And this is common, became a common rhetorical ploy at this point, but you kind of see how it works. It's like buy into it, you're one of the cool folks. You don't buy into it, get skeptical. You're threatened not just with being, having a difference of opinion, but being an old dinosaur. Um, now, back to the broad context. At the time, if you'd gotten yourself a modem and were reading a message like this on a monochrome screen, perhaps during a slow day at the office, or perhaps late at night at home, It was really arresting. Barlow's email suggested to the lone cubicle dweller that a new sense of energy was emerging in the online world. The incongruous juxtaposition of a grateful dead lyricist with CIA officials was was funny, of course, but it was also really enticing. How many people get invitations to talk to CIA officials, much less go on to tweak the officials' noses and get away with it? Here was someone whose tax bracket and espionage experience were probably comparable to yours as a kind of you know, junior assistant professor or graduate student or middle manager. Yet he was boldly preaching to an established, powerful, and sometimes violent institution. So there on your screen, in isolation, you could sense maybe here was a new opening, a new avenue towards power. So as a mid-level white-collar reader of this text in early 1993, you felt uniquely privy to this intriguing opening because you were among the elite few who had mastered the arcane art of online access. Remember, you were the one who kind of played around with the modem, figured it out, figured out how to get from one network to another. You who both got the joke and technically could get access to it were invited to be one of the vanguard, one of Barlow's, natives of the future. It gave you a new sense of what it meant to be sitting in one's office typing. A new, hipper, less ordinary sense of self. And the effect was really delicious. Okay. Now multiply that experience by hundreds, then thousands, then tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands. In the early 1990s, growing numbers of professionals and white-collar workers were being surprised by this kind of experience on their desktop computers. As the number of people with some variety of online access increased from month to month, more and more people had an experience of stumbling upon something striking. It could be a surprising exchange on an email discussion list. I remember having an argument with a uh, FCC commissioner who would certainly not return a phone call with me, but online there it was. Um, It could involve a tidbit of insider information from afar, or it could be a titillating personal revelation. This was the moment when stories of email romances began to circulate in popular folklore in the United States. So something out of the ordinary, it seemed, was afoot. And as Barlow's message was circulating in email discussion lists and news groups in February of 1993, the first issue of Wired Magazine hit the newsstands. And within a year, the new magazine would have a circulation of over 100,000 and a curious readership several times that. Um, now, this is just a little scene, um, part of a cha- one chapter of the book, and I'm going to summarize how I tie this into larger trends in history. Um, In the book, I argue that from about 1992 to 1994, the Wired magazine was key to the wide distribution of a distinctly romantic or Emersonian individualist construction of these experiences, by which I mean roughly a construction of the activity of computing not as a means towards an end, but as an expressive activity akin to art, and a sense of self understood as expressive and processual rather than as, say, fixed and calculating. It was more Byron than homo economicus. And I go on to make the case that in the specific political economic context of the early 1990s, this particular construction was a necessary part of several things, of how the Internet became the network of networks between 1993 and 1995. In 1993, the, the Internet was an experiment. It wasn't the future. Um, The information superhighway was the future. Um, It was a necessary part of the dot-com stock bubble, which, depending on how you measure it, still remains the largest global stock bubble in uh, human history. And ultimately, a condition of the revival of neoliberalism in the 1990s, uh, uh, the deep belief in uh, mar- free markets and uh, deep suspicion that government and government regulation um, are worthwhile. Now, that's one chapter. In the book, I make, each chapter makes a similar connection between lived experiences with computers, political ideology, and political economic trends that shape the construction of the internet. Um, those are huge claims. I'm not asking you to accept them at this point. Um, But today, rather than elaborate on them here, I'm going to change gears again and try to theorize the micro-sociology of this process, which is what brings me to Bourdieu. My interest today is in contributing to the broad problem of understanding how ideas spread and gain traction. And I want to do this not in terms of how ideas prevail through rational argument. The 1990s dot-com bubble was hardly rational. Nor by pointing to say a dominant ideology as if ideas had some kind of force in their own right apart from their specific instantiation. Um, So I'm interested in how ideas become thrilling to specific people at specific times. How ideas can somehow come to generate fire in the belly now in the book, I mostly deal with this question narratively. I tell carefully the story of how one thing led to another. I do make reference to max weber 's concepts of disenchantment and reenchantment with the modern um, the the idea in Weber that there's a kind of longing to bring the magic back in a modernized society, a sense of loss, of enchantment, and a desire to somehow recover it that comes with modernity. And I also reference Raymond Williams, the British cultural sociologist. I reference Raymond Williams's concept of a structure of feeling, And you could say what I just presented is a structure of feeling of mid-level white-collar work from the early 1990s. Um, A kind of shared pattern of feeling and thought and action. But these are limited ways of understanding the problem. Uh, Stuart Hall, some of you may have heard of, once described the concept of structure of feeling as broken-backed. And I think... He said that because the idea of a structure of feeling is more a name for a problem than for its solution. You know, you have feelings, you have structures, they're connected, but how? Um, so I do think what I laid out empirically in the book is worth returning to for some more reflection on the level of social theory. And my goal... Here is to try to get at the very complicated and crucial interplay between subjective experiences, how we feel, how we understand ourselves, and social structures. Um, There's a kind of force field between the individual and society, and understanding it is no simple matter. So this is what brings me to the French sociologist Bourdieu, Pierre Bourdieu. For those of you who are new to the concept of habitus, his most famous concept, basically, it's his response to the structure agency problem, to the how you understand um, the relationship between human agency and social structure. As he put it, it's his answer to the question of how behavior is regulated without recourse to rules. The concept starts from the observation that, on the one hand, people act strategically and practically to get things done as they go through life. People are not robots following commands against their will. They want to do things. But they do not do those things in a vacuum. People are strategic improvisers using learned past experiences um, and values to make sense of things. And that's not just a way to say that people resist domination. If you want to understand how domination in society happens, how power gets exercised, you have to understand the role of people's strategic improvisations in creating and recreating systems of power. So as Bourdieu put it, the relationship to what is possible is a relationship to power. People act strategically. They do what they think is possible. But that is done in the context of inherited histories, cultural habits that have their own relationship to power. And it's that zone of inherited cultural habits that people use strategically that habitus exists. Uh, Here's Bourdieu's most frequently quoted definition of habitus. And if you've never read Bourdieu, yeah, he writes like this. He calls it a system of durable, transposable dispositions. Structured structures predisposed to function as structuring structures. That is, as principles which generate and organize practices and representations that can be objectively adapted to their outcomes without presupposing a conscious aiming at ends or an express mastery of the operations necessary in order to attain them. I apologize, I'm not going to completely unpack that dense uh, description. I'm just going to kind of borrow phrases from that and kind of try to show you how it might work in practice here. But um, in my case, go back to the early 1990s digital habitus, what it felt like to be sitting there typing commands on a monochrome screen living a middle-class life then. What are the durable, transposable dispositions? Now, I think they're not reducible to technology. There's a temptation to say, the computer, that's durable, it's transposable, it's kind of part of the thing. And, but it's not just the technology. The identity of the rebel outsider tossing off the shackles of tradition, the Byronic gesture... That Barlow's email offered the cubicle dweller that particular image, that particular construct of the self. Well, that's a set of cultural informs inherited from immediately the 1960s counterculture. I mean, John Perry Barlow read The Village Voice in 1970. He uh, um, soaked up this stuff, he hung out with the Grateful Dead, um, and picked up a set of cultural. Forms and maneuvers that were, he was then using to do what he was doing. And um, I don't have time to get into this, but I actually make the case in the book that this goes back to an Emersonian tradition of American Romantic individualism um, more broadly. But, and it's worth pointing out, in the early 1990s, those habits of talk and action were known. You had to kind of be familiar with the genre to get Barlow's uh, um, email, for it to not just appear strange. Um, and if, that you, that was the, if you were familiar, that was because you'd read it in print. And Wired, which I think its most influential period were those first two, three years. It was read almost entirely in print at that time. They had some online things, but it was hard to get. It was a print magazine. Its graphical layout, which in those days, there's no way you could reproduce that on a computer, was one of the keys to a success. its success. It's very innovative, kind of day glow, um, hard to read, but very attractive. Uh, um, print layout. Um, so it's not just the technology. Part of it is the set of cultural habits of talk. Um, and I think also there was a class dimension. The Barlow email was not appealing to everyone. In 1992 and 93, the folks at the top were talking about tidy information superhighways emerging from some kind of well-planned mix of corporate and government cooperation. If you read Time, Newsweek, Business, Magazines fortune in those days. Um, They'd be quoting Bill Gates, Al Gore, um, and uh, the heads of the cable, television, and phone companies. None of them were talking about the internet, and none of them were adapting this rhetoric. Um, The information superhighway was going to be this nice, tidy kind of operation where people looked up sports scores, maybe, and children studied in electronic encyclopedias and things like that. Um and so I think it's safe to say that the Barlow email would not have had much effect on CEOs in the day if they'd read it. Nor would the email have um any effect or interest to, say, the janitor who emptied the waste baskets in the cubicles. Um This was a moment that appealed precisely to the middle white-collar ranks, to people who did their own word processing. And notice, that in these days, the the tradition of typing was still... There was this residual... It was a a lower thing um, for lower down the ranks. And uh, because of the tradition of the secretary doing the typing and the people above him or her, mostly her, kind of scrawled things on yellow pads and handed them to her, that was... still part of the culture. And so, uh, you know, if you weren't important enough to get someone to type for you, then you had that computer on your desk. Um, So it was folks who did their own typing that were able to see it all happening on their connected computers in this period. Um, And I think then what happened, part of the experience was watching everyone at the top as the internet wave kind of hit somewhere in the summer of 1993 and Mosaic was released that fall and all of a sudden internet became not just some obscure experiment that some scientists were doing somewhere but um, the next cool thing. As that happened, people who were kind of messing around with their modems knew about it before the guy in the corner office before the CEO did. And they got to watch one by one, 94, 95, as the CEOs had to start revamping their strategies, as America Online had to start selling itself not as as a way to get access to the internet, as Bill Gates and uh, the US Congress all had to start retooling policies around this internet thing. Um, and by 1995, URLs were starting to appear on um, television advertisements, and that, that was actually—it was, it was quite a whirlwind of change that was characterized by the people at the top not knowing at what was going on. At the time that people down below them were catching on, so it was a—it was a very peculiar structure of economic and technological change. And see, when that happens, when the people at the, in the middle know before the people at the top know, it lends itself to a kind of theatrical iconoclasm. If the folks at the top could be wrong about something as big as the Internet, what else could they be wrong about? Um, now, okay, so there's lots of things that weren't technological at the time that made that set things in motion, that help um, make this particular habitus vivid and give it energy. But I do think that the peculiarities or affordances of network-connected interactive desktop computing was part of Bourdieu's durable dispositions, to get back to the language of Bourdieu, here, in two senses. The first is what Sherry Turkle has called computer-holding power. Um, It's You know, that familiar thing, the way an interactive computer can suck you in. You hit a key, get a result that's not quite what you want. You try again and again. And the result is a series of safely unpredictable unfolding events where you can lose track of time and where the interaction itself is rather... The interaction itself, not some predetermined goal, is the driving force. Now you can have this experience of getting sucked in and just treat it as something weird, perhaps annoying. And I think many people do and did and still do exactly that. You go, oh man, why did I just waste all that time doing that? But sometimes another response to getting sucked in is to try to say, there must be something important that I just spent the last two hours doing. There must be something valuable there. And one way to ascribe meaning to getting sucked in is to say, I wasn't wasting time. I was engaged in exploration. I was engaged in play. Maybe I was engaged in art. Um, Maybe it's not time-wasting. Maybe it's a window onto Xanadu, which uh, poem by Coleridge, um, Kublai Khan, and also the name of... uh, one of the early Hypertext Pioneer's beloved projects, um, Ted Nelson's uh, original proposal for Hypertext back in the 70s. Um, Well, so, again, for the cubicle dweller in 1992, having the Barlow email float up on your screen late at night could do a lot to solidify that sense of finding a frontier of being an explorer, of something about that process of being sucked into the computer as being valuable, a new avenue towards something good. Um, Now a second related affordance of digital communication technology is spatial. The keyboard connected screen creates a zone that for the white collar worker combines routine work with both play and communication at a distance. The screen blurred some boundaries. Back then it would have been between work, play, and communication, which had been up to that point in history for most people quite separate, all three of those things. And all of a sudden they were sort of getting merged. Um, Spatially merged. Um, But it also intensified boundaries, particularly the boundaries between oneself and physically proximate others. So it enlarges the capacity to ignore those who are breathing the same air as you. And so it's what enables us to be alone together, but also together alone. You know, through online connections you can create an imaginary community of, for example, iconoclastic individualist artist heroes. Um, Now, structuring structure. What consolidated as a habitus in the early 1990s was a growing sense, shared experience among the folks who did their own typing, of a computer communication articulated as a creative, expressive activity associated with uh, a very particular romantic tradition of iconoclasm. Now, it became a structuring structure in the sense that it spread throughout the cubicles and offices and then got reinforced in the media through magazines like Wired and then became not just an interesting option for the board office worker, but something one felt more or less obligated to orient oneself to. Um, It became became externalized and hard, not just your own private experience, but something outside that all of a sudden, if you were in business, if you were uh, in politics, you started having to pay attention to it. And I talk in the book how... One of the symptoms of this is various political groupings tried to seize on this and make it their own. The first were the libertarians. They get credit for being first up to say, this is our world. And they also, they're also they still struggling to somehow present the internet as a triumph of the marketplace when um, it came from various kinds of government funding and university research and all that. Um, But then not long after them, cyber lawyers like Larry Lessig seized on all this in a similar way with different political valence. Um, But the result was that by 1996 or so, it was oddly difficult to get taken seriously if you didn't get on board with the style and rhetoric of the internet revolution. So it became. the personal anecdotes aren't very strong here, but just to give you a sense of what it felt like. If, for example, you thought the stock bubble was a bubble, graduate students would walk out of your seminar because you so clearly didn't get it. Um, you know, administrators, editors of presses would, you know, you'd start making the case, well, actually, you know, the stock bubble stuff, actually the laws of the economy haven't been suspended. and you know, they started looking over your shoulder for someone really worth talking to, you know. And it, it sort of, it was just like, you felt like there was no, if you, if you didn't enter that world, it was, uh, um, you were out of it. And certainly in the economic world, that's part of what fed the stock bubble after it started to take off. You kind of felt like, geez, I don't want to be a dinosaur. And as you watched the stock market rise and rise and rise you kind of thought I'd better dive in. Um, That's what I think Bourdieu is trying to get at when he talks about structuring structures, how these little inherited habits where people are just strategically trying to find their way in the world start to congeal and become articulated with larger uh, patterns. Now... I have to mention that I came to this idea of calling this a habitus of the new through a conversation with Zizi Papatrici. Um, And she's been studying the sociology of things like Facebook and Twitter. And she and a graduate student came up with the idea of habitus of the new to explain the sense of permanent novelty that seems to be associated with social media. Um, I'll just commend you to their work. Um, They have a piece um, coming out in January and some of it can be found online I think through Culture Digitally. Um, and, but there were certain things that really um, attracted me to the idea because uh, Zizi in particular has emphasized how this habitus is characterized by an accelerated reflexivity. How that once we've assembled this context and platforms of digital interaction We've all created an expectation of ourselves that has a certain kind of time sense of not just that this is a new place to define yourself, but that you have to redefine yourself constantly, even before you're maybe done with defining yourself in another way. I mean, a, a trivial example would be, you know, you don't want your uh, Facebook uh, uh, profile picture to get old. You know how people kind of up feel like they got updated every once in a while and everybody checks it out and you know you don't it's a uh, um, the only reason I do it is because people won't let me show older pictures of myself where I'm not so gray you know but it's I mean I think for younger people it's a it's a different problem you have to kinda just keep changing it and um, now I'm less interested in the microsociology of current social media and more the relevance of this idea of the habitus of the new to the broad political sweep of things. Um, the habitus, the concept of habitus draws attention to what Zizi calls practices that are reflective of habituated predispositions of past, of the past, and expectations we thus develop of the future. This is a good example of how the past then shapes our expectations of the future, how we understand the future happening. And yes, that's kind of my point in the net effect. Because of the accident of how the Internet entered the scene in the United States, we became habituated to stories of people using computers to throw established authorities into disarray. Stories of surprising computer-related business startups. Microsoft, Apple, Google goes on and on. Of peculiar digital inventions taking the world by storm. Of internet use by political rebels, from Howard Dean to the Tea Party and beyond. Of disruptive events that throw entire industries into disarray, like college students downloading music or uploading videos. We are so familiar, so habituated to those stories, that we jump to the conclusion of technology-driven change, even when there's plenty of obvious evidence to the contrary as in the case of what happened with the stock bubble, but also how people responded to the Arab Spring, how in this country we're talking about the Twitter revolution, as though that was the, the key, as opposed to so many other things that were going on there. Um, so, basically, what I'm gnawing on is that I think the combination of the micro-sociology of computer action, interaction, combined with the specific ways computers were introduced in the United States via the, the institutions of startups clothed in the counterculture, repeatedly proving wrong the dominant corporate and government wisdoms. And that's, it didn't have to happen that way. Minitel was, the French Minitel system, which everybody who studies the internet should know a lot about, it's unfortunate that it doesn't get taught, is, was introduced by the French postal system. They were having email romances about 10 years before we were On their little Minitel systems, but it was a different political economic structure. So it had a different feel to it, even though it was roughly the same technology. Um, So it's all these the way it happened, the historical peculiarities lent themselves to an individualist narrative where change, what we so often call innovation, is supposedly the product of unique individuals expressing themselves with unpredictable but glorious results the whole thing lent itself to a sense of individuality that's open to expression and unpredictability, but I think blind to aspects of the social, to the necessities and blurriness of human interdependence, to understanding social relations as collective accomplishments. So we have come to expect what we call revolutions in the means to communicate. At the same time as a society many of us have pretty much given up the hope for change and say our dysfunctional politics, the the non-unresponsiveness of our politicians, or we've given up doing something about our dependence on the automobile. We we, we, Electric cars, we're doing all that, but just the idea of the car itself um, and the obvious solution of public transportation. Well, no, we don't want to go there. Um, That doesn't seem practical to us. Or the persistence of poverty. In the mid-1960s, people couldn't imagine Facebook, but the US Democratic Party was actually quite serious about ending poverty. And it's true they didn't. But now we might be allowed to care about the poor, but we no longer talk in our broad public arenas about eradicating poverty altogether. And I expect these two conditions, the habitus of the new and the loss of a capacity to imagine social relations as something we have control over in the broader sense, that those two phenomena are related. Now, I'll wrap up. I think to substantiate all this, more work is needed. Um, So I'll just talk a little bit about what's next for this. Um, One of the more interesting parts of my conversation with Zizi is her speculations about Greece. She's regularly Facebooking both in English and in Greek, which is her native tongue. And I think one of the things that prompted her to draw on Bourdieu was how she noticed differences between the feel of Facebook in Greek and the feel of Facebook in, um, in English with Americans. Because she's constantly going back and forth, and it's, it's not just a different language doing the same thing. There's a different articulation, a different sort of habitus, slightly, involved. But And then further, in the dialogue that we're putting up, she speculates about the role of the habitus of the new in the Greek financial crisis. The habit of accelerated reflexivity, she talks about, she thinks might have something to do with how it came to be that in Greece, massive borrowing made sense. seemed like a natural, obvious, practical thing to do. Remember, the practical is always a relationship to power. But getting everybody to pay their taxes became somehow unthinkable. Kind of beyond the pale. I can't do anything about that. Um, and that's th- those two conditions are a large chunk of why they're in such a fix and why Europe is in such a fix and in some sense why we're in such a fix um, at the moment economically. Um, now where this line of inquiry leads, points to, would be a kind of historical comparative analysis where you compare different social and historical contexts for network computing and see if you can generalize from that. Now, another point is that the habitus of the new is going to be different for different folks in different walks of life. Teenagers expect new gadgets and new memes at their fingertips, but we can't assume that they connect those expectations to the rest of their lives in the same way that, say, middle-aged executives might or other people. So it's, um, there's, there's going to be significant differences between people, and that needs to be taken into account. Finally, I think all this needs to be put in a broader historical context. The habitus of the new is a subcategory of the experience of modernity, that sense that Marx identified so long ago of how we live in a world in which all that is solid seems to melt into the air. And now, I wonder if it can be connected to the specific effects of living in a world shaped by Moore's law, which is, you know, Moore's law, it's not a physical law so much as it is a mode of industrial organization, a way of coordinating expected constant change across an industry. Um, And so maybe in our time, Moore's law has been playing a role analogous to the role played by standardized parts in the assembly line in the first three quarters of the 20th century. Um, Where, you know, if the assembly line is what kind of was the backdrop to the man in the gray suit, the organization man of the 50s. Um, maybe the Moore's Law is playing a similar role in our lives. Um, and the difference is that Moore's Law foregrounds change rather than sameness, rather than uniformity. That is, while both the assembly line and Moore's Law help organize both change and uniformity both materially and symbolically, um, the former foreground sameness, the assembly line foreground sameness, everything looks the same, and leaves change in the experiential background left to some abstract idea of progress, while a habit, the Moore's Law kind of inverts the two because the expectation of constant change is built into the industrial process. I'll stop there and see if uh, you have any questions. Hi,
2: I really enjoyed your talk. Um, I love the quote that you started off with about history speaking in moments of novelty, and I I think the the way you invoked Moore's Law at the end there gets really to the heart of my question. In my own research, I'm studying computer-generated imagery and set pieces as sort of a a place where audiences go to to really contemplate uh, the novelty of the technology that makes that possible in a reflective space and in a somewhat artistic space. Um, But one thing I keep coming up against in my own research is that, uh, although it's tempting to say that Moore's Law, the endless sort of technological novelty that comes through that stunning pace of development... Um, you might say that a sort of technological novelty that was once a limited resource in the pre-digital, pre-computer age is now somewhat of a a renewable resource. Um, But that doesn't seem to be true. It doesn't seem to pan out. Um, We can say that something like Transformers 3, the fall of Cybertron or whatever Mm -hmm. it was called, is technically speaking just as new, just as only possible now and not possible last year as Jurassic Park was, and yet it doesn't feel as new. So my question to you is, is sort of, when does the novelty of novelty cease to be novel? Is this something that's going to... When, when do we hit peak novelty and what happens to our culture? Is that contained just within the realm of computing and the digital or does that start to spread out and do we become blasé about everything in our culture? Well,
1: I think it's, you know, the, that's a great question. Thank you. And it's, I, I think, uh, you know, the sociologists in me will say, well, it all depends on who you're talking to, you know, and that um, different people are going to run into that in different times. Um, But, yeah, you know, the internet revolution, it's not a revolution anymore. It's just, you know, things are changing, but we're just like, okay, here comes the next thing. I think we are past peak novelty. I think part of, you know, what enabled people to sell toys.com, you know, a profitless company without much of a business model for fabulous... Amounts of money on the stock market. What in allowed this little a- America Online to buy the largest media conglomerate in the world, Time Warner? That was not a merger, that was a purchase initially. They just. And that what allowed people back then to say, this is, yeah, we got to go with this, um, was precisely this kind of the novelty of novelty. And I think. Um, now there's, it's still there. I mean, if you're working in Silicon Valley and you have to go with what's the. You can't, I don't imagine you can say, look, this has been working for 20 years. Why do we want to change that? You know, in 1975, that was a perfectly reasonable thing to say in most business circles. And I'm not sure it is either here in. You know the 128 environment, or in Silicon Valley. So there's still in that area that sense of change may still be necessary. I think sometimes to the detriment of the businesses. I think the quiet person who kind of secretly goes off and just kind of says, "Actually, it's working for 20 years. I'm going to stick with it." May be actually doing just fine economically. But I don't. Rhetorically, my hunch is it's not quite there. I'm guessing for you guys in In this program i 'm really curious how you see it as playing out in the worlds you 're looking at and the worlds you 're living in, um, like how much the necessity of novelty um, is defining things for you or whether novelty's getting old.
3: Thanks for the uh, history it 's uh, always nice to see it get sort of the historical tidbits. Um, and I want to pick up my question there because your slides, I've got this nagging question somehow about um, you know the frame you had up on the slides was the 1990s digital habitus. And if we think about history again in those early years, which I'm sure you can remember well, um, you know, there's Barlow, of course, as part of the story. But those years were also the years of Mondo 2000, Boing Boing, rave culture, transhumanism. There was also a whole other trek of things happening during that period and you know one story is Barlow's the outsider to the CIA but um, Kapoor was certainly not an outsider to a certain form of uh, success and capital and computing so it, how, how how should we think of that other thread of history that was running right alongside those early years I mean Sterling on the cover of of Wired that's you know cyberpunk was also there at that moment so how how can we think about that story in the Singularity of habitus?
1: I mean, excellent question. And you know, part of the problem is the the general question, one of the big methodological problems of history is you zoom the telescope in and look at things closely and it's you, you see not a pattern, but like millions of different patterns pulling in different directions. And it's only when you pull it way out that you can kind of think you see like, well, here's the rise of individualism over a millennium long period or something. And um, so it's this is a case of that. In the net effect, um, what I was interested in and how I selected case studies, because you 're right, I don't talk about Mondo 2000, um, was I l- tried to look for trends that precisely connected one world to another, you know, usually the mainstream, and seemed to have an effect on big political, economic, or technological decisions. Because it's, and it's, I'm not saying those things are uninfluential, but it's, they were influential in some ways and not others. And there's, a, there's an empirical question that we could still talk through. I'd actually be interested in that, about that period, about who influenced what and how. But I, I tried looking for precisely things that weren't just kind of interesting culturally that people remember in the cultural sphere, but things that seem to kind of be pushing or nudging or having an influence on the political economic. So it's, I mean, another example of that is I do, like the early 80s, a lot of people make a big deal out of, say, um, that kind of dark view uh, um, that, and the, the Ridley Scott Macintosh Apple ad and stuff like that. But actually, in fact, you know, those ran once during the Super Bowl and a couple other experimental times, those, those Macintosh 1984 ads. And actually how Apple was selling most of the time there was, was driven by Mark Markula, which was pleasant. You know, they looked like Kellogg's ads. You know, pleasant people in suburban homes, you know, with little illustrations of, here's you can balance your checkbook by an Apple computer. And it was that... the the And so I actually think that that way of selling the Apple was more important. I mean there were other pieces of the experience, I have a chapter on this, uh, in, in that period than the, um, uh, the, the 1984 Apple ad which said something more about the internal culture of various groups but I don't think was necessarily that influential at that moment. So, um,
0: I think we're going to go Ian, Sasha, Molly. Yeah.
4: Hi, I'm Ian Condry at CMS here, and uh, it's, very, it's very interesting, and, and I, I like the directions you're going. Uh, one of the things I wonder is how things have changed, you know, recently. Is, is there a shift from this romantic individualism to something else? And and I wonder, that's where I was thinking, is Moore's Law still as relevant as it once was? That I think there was a time when we worried about computing power, and it was so exciting how much faster computers got. But maybe we reach a point where you say, actually, now I edit video, and this is good enough. And the, the, that's not the issue. That The new kind of power, and I, I liked the idea of the thrill of being in the know. I, I think there's a lot going on there. And, and there is. it's like gossip, and the way gossip... In one way, is it's just a, a word or a bit of information. On the other hand, it sets up a social structure, right, of who's on whose side and where you stand. And that it, it seems to me that one of the things that's shifting from the romantic individualist to there was the language I remember where now anyone can be a publisher, right? You don't have to be the New York Times. You, you can publish it yourself. And it was built into this older model of what it meant to be a publisher, mm-hmm. uh, what it meant to get the word out there. Whereas now this sort of collective the emergent network idea of the authority of knowledge that 's more like reddit right it 's more like the upvoting process that where people start to use, say well that 's what the internet does or that 's what'll happen with the internet and almost giving an activity to this kind of network it seems to be shifting from that that romantic individualism that I can speak to anyone to recognizing that distributed, sort of networked power, and that, in fact, that's where the thrill of being in the know is. is not so much me knowing, but me being part of the network that does know, and that those ideas will bubble up to the top of that. It seems to put in a, a somewhat different idea about structure, and I guess this is my question I always wonder about Bourdieu, is that it's very interesting when it comes to structure and power, and status, but harder to explain change, you know, and harder to explain transformation. And there, it seems to me, that's why I'm sort of become more interested in questions of value, and how value is something we're chasing after, and it always has this sort of progressive potential, not always progressive in a good sense, but at least it's a pulling forward uh, that then, like that new bit of gossip, like that new idea, sets up new kind of structures around it. So my, I guess my question is whether this romantic individual is being replaced by a kind of me in a distributed network mode that might give us a different view of even what the internet is.
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a, but it's a, a partly. Um, I'm too old and too involved in other things to be kind, right on up on what's going on inside the internet. But the other point is is that nothing's just inside the Internet that I mean, part of what I want to do in the net effect is kind of make the you know, it's like Heidegger's point that the essence of technology is not technological, that the Internet by itself is nothing, It's not very interesting anyway, that what's interesting is insofar as it matters to important things in material life, to you know political, economic questions. And I'm using that word. Quite broadly, not just to mean money. Um, and uh, so, the, and you know, I'm actually quite loath to kind of say where things are going um, because while, of course, it's really tempting, and geez, we'd like to know, and if you're in business or something, you need to know, at least in your own area, you know, it helps to be able to make a good guess. But I think, as scholars, we've laced, wasted a lot of ink predicting, you know, the in the, one of the things in the early 90s was all that stuff about virtuality. Everything had to be about the virtual, and the virtual was changing everything, and it was all like, you know, and there was this still that sense of, you know, geez, artificial spaces, and, and, and people were absolutely fascinated by that and how it was changing our identity and sense of self and on the Internet, and no one knows you're a dog. I mean, it was... And you know, graduate students were going to and coming to starting their programs, you know, with Foucault in one hand and John Perry Barlow in the other, and saying, "I want to explore how people are becoming alternate identities on the internet." And um, I think there was a a bit of a mistake or a kind of overemphasis on novelty and not on putting it in the broad political and social context of the day and sort of reading other things and how they might influence. So I think it's, you know, the, the, the for me I think there's a, um, there is a big question about where we're going to go right now with um, financial speculation and financialization. We financialized the economy heavily and there's actually a very, very serious debate about whether that's a good idea or whatnot, and quite a political fight going on right now. And I think maybe what people like you can contribute to is help figure out, like, depending on what you think of financialization, I think it's been a pretty bad idea. Um, that if you want to come up with an alternative, you know, to try to find cultural threads that you might then hook up to political things that might help enter that fight and do something good with it. Because I think part of what enabled, I mean, you know, John Perry Barlow was doing this Natives of the Future thing. And yeah, it was just a few years later that this guy Jeffrey Skilling at Enron was doing the same thing. You know, Those people who think you know, this uh, huge financial empire we're building, um, they're, they're just, they just don't get it, he would say. And he got that rhetoric from Wired and places like that and built this giant corporation that came crashing down. When was it, 2001? the Enron scandal, and, uh, um, so it's, uh, uh, I think, you know, look how people are using it, look at what's, the, the specific things that are an issue, and maybe try to, and so, yeah, maybe, and I think, you know, the way the, the, uh, cyber lawyers have tried to use the fact, the collective fact of, uh, Open source and things to make other political points about copyright law would be an example of that and they 've gotten somewhere i mean you know net neutrality and all that that 's a really good you know it 's not actually a new concept but it 's a new rhetoric that works really well you know I, I, all I was saying back in the day was well, we need to go back to common carrier and boy did that go nowhere and uh, um, so, but if you say we need net neutrality, it has a certain kind of rhetorical thrust that connects into these kinds of things very effectively. So, I guess I'm kind of interested not in saying where's it going, but in looking for those sorts of connections that, that might lead to something useful.
5: Uh, hi, thanks, I enjoyed your talk a lot. Uh, I'm Sasha costanza I'm an assistant professor of civic media here in CMS. Um, I want to follow up a little bit on T.L. Taylor's question. So um, in a similar way, I'm kind of thinking about uh, processes that are taking place in the late 90s through into the early 2000s that cross the first Internet boom and bust cycle. Um, I'm thinking about uh, histories of that time period that would focus more on what... Uh, uh, free software activists, hackers, autonomous theorists who are linked at the time to the burgeoning global justice movement that becomes highly visible in 1999 in Seattle with the World Trade Organization's mm-hmm. collapse in front of the mass forces of labor, environmental, feminist, indigenous rights activists, who of course link at the time to the uh, the birth of the Independent Media Center, which is inspired by Subcomandante Marcos from the Zapatistas call for a global network of networks that can resist the spread of neoliberal capital um, and then goes on to spawn uh, open publishing processes that the mass culture industries very quickly realize they're going to have to replicate if they want to be able to capture some of this process of networked media production and labor. And so within you know, a couple of years, you have CNN launching iReports, you have basically a shift of the entire, uh, the, the normalized mode of the mass culture industries has to nod to and then significantly incorporate participatory media production in its process, not because it's cool and edgy, but because they're, they're being undermined and scooped. By these anarchist hacker kids with a bunch of laptops. And I have, you know, I have friends who worked in newsrooms at the time who said literally we would come back each day from the streets of Seattle and our editors would chew us out in the hotel rooms saying, Why are these crusty punks with piercings, you know, screwing us on every story? You know, they're you know, get out there and and fight them. So I think it's a little bit too easy to say, um, it sounded to me like you were kind of saying, well maybe that was happening, but it's not really the dominant mode, and I think that partly that may be, um, you know, is is the, so. The question is: is is the narrative then that you're telling about what becomes important? Is that being overdetermined by the way that this whole process is being represented in the glossy mass media surface spaces, rather than what's actually happening in the social practices within activist networks who are actually producing this stuff? <coughs>
1: No, that's a really good question. And I think, yeah, I wasn't saying that that stuff didn't matter. I was saying it's kind of an empirical question about how and why it mattered. And I was explaining why I focused on certain things out of the huge variety. I mean, um, you know, my case is... uh, Howard Dean, I know, is really unfashionable. Always was in academia. And, And it's true, the guy's... You know Zephyr Teachout, who um, I co-edited the book with. uh, She, you know, she would walk across the country on her knees for the man, but she'd say, "You know, come on, he's 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 somewhere on the near end of the Asperger syndrome," and you know he didn't know he didn't have an email address when he started that campaign. Um, But the the Dean campaign and the oh the Scream is the least interesting part of the campaign. Um, the Dean campaign changed the um, core of the Democratic Party. Um, and it, it introduced, you are able to say things and have fights and reference things inside the Democratic Party. You can talk about a Democratic base which did not, was unsayable inside the um, democratic party before dean um you can you know when obama stands up there i mean there would be no president obama without the dean campaign but it's also you know when he says there well there's the left and there's the right and i'm in the middle he says there's a left no democratic president has talked about the left in so many words and given them credit for having a position while in office um since at least mcgovern well and he never made it right and so uh um the things have changed now. The I think you it's you, you you need to look at context, and it sounds like you're working through the context of all these things about how it happened in newsrooms. I mean, the Dean changed campaigning in this country um, partly because the media had not yet caught up with uh, um, the internet. It was partly just a timing thing, and it came from outside the campaign originally. It was like geeks messing around and doing all this stuff. And the people inside Burlington were like, what the hell is this? And uh, they just had the wisdom. And it was the period of a couple weeks that kind of said, OK, we're just going to dive into this, and which was the unusual thing to do. And uh, um, that, but it was, there was just such a vacuum uh, on the internet, from the part of the mainstream news media, and from most politicians. And, and, and this is crucial, there was a growing percentage of the population that were reading their newspapers every morning and reading about the invasion of Iraq and reading about the um, weapons of mass destruction and saying, this world, that the New York Times, that the CNN, that all, am I the only one who's crazy? What's going on? There was just, there was a, there was a huge misconnection between the dominant media And so when you could be in 2002, you could be poking around the internet thinking, am I the only one? And the Dean campaign was all of a sudden like, wow, I'm not. I can go to a meetup. There are other people. I'm not the only one. It's not me that's crazy. There really is something crazy at the top. And that was a very distinct kind of organization of discourse and politics and power that made the internet absolutely crucial at that point. And it's you know the internet the Tea Party's made better use of the internet than anyone else since then, except in certain moments. But uh, um, in terms of influencing broad events, but uh, um, I think uh, so. I think you're right. There's very important things going on, and I'd want to hear more. And I, I looked at some of your work, and uh, about how upstarts have completely flummoxed the mainstream media and I think that's, that still goes on and there's still sort of interesting things happening um, I wouldn't want to read it as just because some guy in a suit is spitting out their coffee over a computer terminal in the morning that the political values of the person who's causing them to do that are triumphing like, th- those are two different questions, you know? And it, so it still is happening, of course, in the mainstream media, although I'd, I'd be interested in what you guys can tell me about how much that's going on. But it's so, yeah, I'm not saying that that stuff is irrelevant at all. And I'm not saying you only look at the mainstream, I mean, and work outwards from there. But I do ask to kind of trace the thread pretty far from one zone to another. To, uh, um, before you make, con- you know, before be- before you make the political conclusion, I mean, this, you know, we're all hoping. I'm all hoping that Occupy Wall Street can start, you know, making some connections. Um,
6: Hi, uh, my name is Molly Sauter, I'm one of the graduate students here, and I mostly focus my research on uh, political activism in technologically transgressive communities. Um, so Psychologically? I'm, I, my, my research is mostly about um, technologically transgressive communities and political activism in those populations. Mm-hmm. So I'm really interested in that you seem to be focusing on this moment of empowerment, this moment of pushing out into the cubicle dwellers, as you call them, and that sort of realization of a community, but... You seem to have glossed over, or perhaps it's addressed in the book, but you didn't mention the talk, especially because of your focus on Barlow, things like The Well or The Whole Earth Catalog or even phone freaking networks on the West Coast in the 1980s and zines that came out of that, like 2600 and Frack, which created these intense communities that were, nec- that were mediated over a network, which seems to be your focus, that then had a huge influence on Perry Barlow and the EFF, and then pushed forward these cultures and shaped the way the mainstream then wanted to to shape the mainstream community and those mainstream networks, like you mentioned, Wired. And Wired was hugely influenced by the way the hacker community adopted Sterling and Neuromancer and that imagery, and that really affected the way that they structured the design of the magazine, which, even though it was impossible to communicate over the network at a time, was still intended to communicate that networkness. So I'm wondering are is I know we I think that a lot of us have sort of picked on this moment that you've chosen. So I'm wondering is there a reason that you started at that moment and not dealt with these other networks or, well, in the or book, do you no, deal I don't, with I, the these the other book, networks? I, I
1: do, you know, there's a chapter and it's and also my book it, it was kind of written at the same time and came out after Fred Turner's book. And so, you know, I talk in great detail and I Part of what I write about a lot is Ted Nelson and the role that he played in the 70's. And, but also I talk about more obscure fig- figures like Lynn Conway, who's a politically ambivalent character but uh, um, who was at Xerox Park and um, helped introduce Silicon Valley to what she called designing design methods um, and which enabled the construction of very large scale integration on microchips which was it was a kind of horizontal collaboration that became crucial to the entire industry and she's an interesting character she was one of the first people in the US to get um, sex chain operation back in the 60s and was fired from Xerox from IBM as a result and then went underground and kind of resurfaced at uh, Xerox Park um in the 70s and so yeah there's a there's a lot of things going on there i think and uh um i do address a chunk of them i'm you know my habit is always to uh um want to complicate the sense of power so i i don't want to put things in terms of a simple dominant and resistant binary and so it's Well, no, and that's absolutely... I mean, one of my points is that it's, it's complicated because on the one hand, the Internet didn't fall from the sky completely designed. It, there's, a, there's a lot of political and social design in the Internet, and it's a remarkable moment. And I do talk a lot about the, p- precisely the influence on the counterculture on the um, moment at which the... ARPANET was split into Milnet and what became the R, Ar- and the way in which a series of long haired countercultural influenced people kind of carefully steered a course between military funding and eventually NSF funding and kind of nurtured this thing out and then still tried to uh, shape how to do it. Did. So I don't say it's all, the- something very important happened there. And yeah, I'm just inclined to say, but it was pretty complicated. And uh, I I think what we learn from what happened in the 80s with regard to the internet and what made it a success and what we can learn from it now is that good public action is uh, um, often an accident that then you nurture. It's not a, a kind of thing that's planned according to particular design. I mean, one of my problems with the idea of the public sphere, as translated into English, in German it's Offenlichkeit, which is openness. But a public sphere is that it, it sounds like this kind of bubble that everybody gets together in and sits around in you know, nicely upholstered chairs and rationally debates, whereas I think usually Offenlichkeit happens often in the margins, in the center, in kind of weird nicks and crannies through people bumping into each other, trying things out. And the, the goal is to kind of find those moments and nurture them and see what we can to, do to learn from them. So I do think, yeah. And I think, but it's the, you know, Fred Turner, he's pretty, he's crankier about the counterculture than I am, and, but I, I kind of know where he's coming from. Um, that uh, it's, uh, you know, the idea of what he, in what he calls the new communalism is, he, t- he says things like, you know, everybody's equal, but some people are more equal than others. there's, a, there's a, You have to be a little bit ironic about some of the things that went on in that piece of the counterculture. Um,
0: so. Um, so we're going to take two more questions. We have one for Chris and one from Nancy.
7: Uh, Thanks, Professor. So you made the claim that Moore's Law is as much about a mode of organizational production as it is a statement about hardware engineering, and it's certainly the case that Moore's Law has become a guide in the research and development of those organizations because it's something that they kind of were expected to hit. But the interesting thing about Moore's Law is that it doesn't actually appear to be operating that way anymore as a principle of hardware engineering. I think most hardware engineers would tell you today that the most relevant challenges in computer engineering are the tra- aren't the transistors that you can fit on a chip but the efficient utilization of those transistors, coding natively for parallel or hyperthreaded processors, and the associated power and cooling regimes, and as Ian said, kind of the actual experience of computer use. So if Moore's Law isn't actually how computers work anymore, then will or should we finally stop using it in the humanities uh, fields? Or has it been so beaten and battered and resurrected outside of its original field uh, that it has become kind of a zombie metaphor, which will indefinitely haunt our discourse?
1: What do you think? <laughs> Brains.
7: I think that
1: a lot of people use it. I just don't know why. It's I think the you know, there was this kind of remarkable experience in my lifetime where technological change generally slowed down. And I think this is still an important to point that. In most parts of our lives, technology—we're still driving the same four-cylinder, four-cycle engines that uh, were the norm when I was a kid, a long, long time ago. And it's—and uh, um, so it's technological change slowed down in all kinds of ways. And what happened in the '80s with Moore's law, as they started cranking out ever more um, powerful computers for ever less prices, the ever smaller prices that th- that became, in one hand, it was just a kind of industrial artifact of a, peculiar to silicon chip manufacture. But it, uh, it had this huge impression on people all over the world and gave people a way of thinking about how to be modern, about how to be... And so, yeah, I, I'm, I've been wondering whether, you know, how much it matters inside the industry anymore there is still kids still teenagers sit around talking and you know they know their phones will be obsolete in a year or two and or they have that expectation and so the industry is still producing things to be superseded um, and i don't know exactly what the technological background is to that and i'd be very interested that's why i asked you what you think is i mean it's, uh, it, I was talking about the imaginative impact of Moore's Law and its effects. And, uh, um, but it, 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 it is significant because for at least for a significant period of time, it was materially very important and had this kind of huge economic effects. And uh, um, yeah, so I, I think that's a great question, like if they're kind of running out of it, or running it to its end, and they're shifting to other kinds of things, what that's going to be, how, what role it's going to play, um, is an open question.
8: Hi, I'm Nancy Boehm, um, visiting here at CMS and down the street at Microsoft Research. Um, there's something that I've been thinking about a lot, and you sort of threw out some phrases that tinged me, um, and I just wa- I'm curious what your take on it is, and maybe you talk about it in the book, but you talked about Um, this kind of romantic individualism fostering a kind of return to neoliberalism and um, obviating um, a sense of social relations as a collective accomplishment. And when I look at the shift to Facebook especially that we're way too deep in right now, one of the things that's so central there is the commodification of social relationships and the ways in which our... The moment you talk about in the early 90s, it never occurred to us that our interactions with one another could be appropriated for commercial gain and that somebody would set up companies where our interactions would be ways to deliver advertising to us to make us better consumers. Um, and I've been shocked over the last two decades at the way in which that's just been so naturalized so quickly and so easily. And people just accept that without, you know, if you could do surveys, they go, oh, yeah, I don't really like social advertising, right? But they don't throw up their arms in rebellion and say, how dare you commodify our social relationships? Facebook sucks. Um, they say, oh, yeah, whatever, and they do Facebook. Um, and I wonder if you might speak to
1: that. Um, great question. Some people say my next book should be about the last ten years. And uh, um, First, just in terms of the role of romantic individualism, I think romantic individualism has a certain kind of relative autonomy. So I have one chapter on how it helped re-enliven neoliberalism in the early 90s, and the next chapter is about how it helped uh, drive the open source movement. Um, that uh, uh, Which had very different political economic implications. So it's, it doesn't necessarily push one in a neoliberal position. It just can. It's, it's one of those things. That it's, it's like a, a cultural toolkit. You can sort of pick up pieces and they get hook, hook articulated or hooked up with at different moments in time. Um, the God, I don't know. You know, like Why did we put it? I think maybe one of the places to start would be trying to do a study of how Wikipedia happened. I think Wikipedia is a miracle. I think it's fabulous. I will never write an encyclopedia article again. I've written a few over the years that isn't going to appear on uh, well, some in some version of open online access, if not Wikipedia itself. And I'm desperately trying to figure out ways so that we can reward junior faculty or have them put it on their media for them to participate in improving Wikipedia. And um, you know, those guys. No advertising, then, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's, it's actually, per, it's a, and I, I don't think it had to happen that way. I think it's a very profound kind of moment that is worth going back and look at and see why did, in the case of online encyclopedias, it go that way? And then why would with uh, uh, social networks, it go this other way? And I think, I don't know the answer, but I'd, I'd really like to, yeah. You know, so I'll throw that back at you. Why don't you figure that out and <laughs> come back and tell us all? And, uh, but Because I think that, that actually, the, 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 there's, there's radically different possibilities all in, in the air right now. And uh, I think making sense of them and both how they happened and how we might valorize some and point out the weaknesses of others would be a very useful thing.
0: Well, thank you all for coming. Thank you to Tom. And I think we should continue the conversation over in E15 on the third floor. We've got lots of free food. And uh, we can keep asking Tom questions and and hang out a bit and um, continue this. But thank you. Thanks very much. You're very helpful.